We're going to be in 1 Samuel 14, verse 24, through all of chapter 15. So another big portion of text. You can find uh, the beginning of that section on page 236 in the Bibles that are provided. Just raise your hand and somebody will provide a Bible for you. If you don't have a Bible, that's a gift from us to you. We hope you take it and read it and enjoy it for yourself to see the Lord who's proclaimed in it. But 1 Samuel 14, verses 24, through all of chapter 15. 15. We're today concluding our series called No Other King in the first half of 1 Samuel, these first 15 chapters. And as we've been looking at this text, we've seen lots related to the whole issue of leadership. We've seen good and bad leaders. We've seen leaders with integrity. We've seen leaders who abuse their people. We see leaders who manipulate their circumstances. We see leaders who try to manipulate God of all People. But leadership is an important topic, and especially godly leadership as well. But part of being a leader is, is risking yourself, being out there in front of people a little bit and risking the criticism of those around you. And at times, leaders don't always get it right. Actually, not just at times. Oftentimes, leaders don't always give it, get it right. And there's a system in leadership related to, and this could be in a, in, a fac, in a school faculty or even in something like parliament, where uh, the constituents who are, who are responding to a leader, who are under that leader's um, shepherding or under his or her guidance, can give a vote of no confidence to communicate to that leader that they're not following. Uh, a vote of no confidence reveals to a leader that he does not, he or she does not have the support of the constituents that they are meant to serve. In British politics, a vote of no confidence can lead to, uh, can lead to that leader's, uh, prime, minister, prime minister's resignation. Now, it doesn't always lead to that. It, it, it sometimes just reveals that, again, that leader does not have the support of his or her constituents. It's not exactly an impeachment, but it's a, way, a formal way of reprimanding the leader. Now, there are times where a vote of no confidence does not always reveal that the leader is on the wrong side. Sometimes it reveals maybe the people are on the wrong side. One leader that I like to read and find encouragement from uh, was a president of a seminary, and about two years into his leadership, he received a vote of no confidence from the faculty. But in fact, it revealed the faculty was on the wrong side of the issues and not him as a leader. But oftentimes, a vote of no confidence reveals that a leader is on the wrong side. There's no worse, or the worst kind of vote of no confidence, though, doesn't come from the constituents that somebody is leading. It comes from God himself who gives a vote of no confidence. As we conclude our series today, No Other King, what we see in uh, the end of 14 and all of chapter 15 is God himself giving a vote of no confidence towards Saul the king. We've been in this, uh, this back and forth of this desire for the king for the nation. Remember that this is a transition. These first uh, 15 chapters or so is a transition from the judges leading Israel to now a monarchy leading Israel. And one of the primary verses in this whole series comes in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19, where the people say, There shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Remember that God was leading them, that he had been leading them through judges. But now the people want a king. And in their request, no demand for a king, they're now rejecting God 
as their king. So God provides a human king over them. He provides Saul. Saul, remember, is more handsome than anybody else in the nation. He could win a beauty contest. He was taller than anyone in the nation. They might pick him first for the basketball team. But he was incompetent by way of leadership. All of those judgments or or, or characteristics about Saul are all about his outward appearance, nothing about his heart, nothing about his morality, nothing about his character. He is tall of stature, but low of character. And this is the king that God placed over the people. This was the people's choice, their king. And remember, by placing Saul as king over them, it communicated the people's rejection of God as the king. But now we come to the text, this vote of no confidence, where God himself now rejects Saul. This ultimate irony. And we see Saul's disobedience totally on display with his rejection. If you're following on your worship program today, our main idea today, as we conclude this series and as we think about this chapter and a half or so, the big idea for us is this. Don't follow the king who doesn't obey the Lord. Follow the king who obeys the Lord completely. Don't follow the king who doesn't obey the Lord. Follow the king who obeys the Lord completely. In this text, in this chapter and a half, we see three final reasons why the Lord rejects Saul as the king or why he would reject any leader. And in all of these rejections, it's reminding us of the kind of king that we ultimately need to place our hope, our trust, and to give our allegiance to. So we're going to be in lots of passages today. Again, a big text. We'll be going in and out of these passages. So I hope you can follow uh, with a Bible in front of you. But three final reasons why God rejects Saul as the king and how they should then, the opposite, should inspire us to look for the kind of king that we can ultimately follow. But number one, God rejects a bad king who acts impulsively. God rejects a bad king who acts impulsively. We begin with concluding this passage from last week after Saul's unrighteousness and his foolishness in a sacrifice. He Remember, as we think about what Pastor Dave preached last week, the people had gathered. Saul did not wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifice. So then he, he, he sacrifices prior to Samuel uh, arriving there. It was unlawful. It was wrong of him. He, what, he did not wait on the Lord. So therefore, God rejected him. He did not trust in the Lord and wait. But Jonathan, Saul's son, did trust in the Lord. And despite despite great odds against him, he was successful against the Philistines. And in chapter 14, verse 23, we see this. So the Lord saved Israel on that day. The Lord saved Israel. This wonderful battle, the Lord saved them. They were excited. There was, reason for, uh, there was reason for celebration over this. But because of Saul's impulsive leadership, they were not able to enjoy it. For many of us in my Bible, there's a break right after verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. But then verse 24, we go right into this. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So what should be a day of victory and celebration, now it's a hard-pressed day for the people. And then right after that, the men have been hard-pressed. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged 
on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Saul wants to aggressively pursue these Philistines. So he says, cursed be anybody who eats prior to this. I am going to, you, you will be uh, stricken from the land if you uh, eat of anything prior to the enemies being uh, executed. But prior to us finally getting everybody. What seems like an honorable idea though is impulsive and foolish. He invokes this curse on them and he invokes his own name in light of this curse as well until he is avenged of his enemies. Notice what he does. He doesn't say until God is avenged of his enemies. He's not seeking to avenge the name of God. He's seeking his own glory. This impulsive decision does not encourage the soldiers to any more passionate pursuit of the enemy, but to unnecessary fear and frustration. And not only that, Saul's own son, Jonathan, didn't even hear the order. So look at verse 26. When the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. And Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put the tip of his staff, of the staff that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Saul spoiled a good victory. Jonathan said it would have been so much better had the people been allowed to eat of the spoil of the land that they had conquered. Remember, Israel was a land flowing with milk and honey. And now they're not able to enjoy it because of an impulsive, ridiculous command by the king. Imagine getting through all of Thanksgiving and then having no pie. In preparation for this morning, uh, my breakfast was a piece of toast with honey on it. Because I'm told by Pastor Jerry, who's the most athletic and, and fit of our pastoral staff, to say even like marathon runners will put a honey in their mouth to give them a little bit of extra energy. It's kind of a natural, uh, it's a natural Red Bull, so to speak, that gets you, that gives you wings. That's another thing. That wasn't in the notes, believe it or not. <laughs> but you get extra energy from this. And obviously Saul, or Jonathan's eyes became bright with this. He was able to enjoy it. But then when he hears what his father had commanded, he doesn't say, oh no, I've broken my father's command. He says, essentially, how foolish of dad. Instead of this being a wonderful victory, it has now been spoiled by a ridiculous command. But then it gets worse. So now the people are hungry. They're starving and they begin to eat before the meal is actually ready. They, they sacrifice, verse 35, or sorry, verse 32, <coughs> describes that they were so hungry that they begin to eat the sheep and the oxen before the blood had been drained. This was an unlawful sacrifice, not a wise practice. And, and, and they were, uh, again, going against the word of the Lord here. But verse 35 then says, and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he had built. So he brings this altar so that they can sacrifice these animals and, and slaughter them in an appropriate manner. And Saul's trying, it almost looks like a course corrective. But before you're tempted to look on Saul with any kind of good feelings, this is a, again, a ridiculous idea. He's, trying, he's, a, he's doing a course corrective of, because of a heavy handed command, unnecessary command that he had given. 
He doesn't repent of this. He doesn't say, sorry, fellas, that was unnecessary. That's on me. And notice that as well, it's the first altar he's built in his own ministry, in his own victory. We see later that Saul had lots of victories over the Philistines. And you mean to tell me this is the first altar to the Lord that he's built? A little late for that. Saul's fake religiosity and impulsiveness are further described later in the chapter when he's trying to discern what to do next. He goes to the priest and says, all right, what would the Lord have us do? And then the Lord's silent. So Saul presumes that the Lord's silence means that there must be sin in the camp. So he says, I'm going to avenge the name of the Lord. I'm going to find whoever has sinned against him, even if it was my son, Jonathan, and that man will die. So we kind of know this through the story, through a, a, a series of Old Testament discernment practices. The lot falls on Jonathan. And Jonathan is there. Verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. So Jonathan did not deny what he had done. He didn't even try to explain or excuse himself by saying, but dad, I didn't even hear you. He simply says, I did it and I will surely die. But again, this is revealing the ridiculousness of Saul. See, a good leader at one point is able to say, you know what, guys, I was out of line. That was heavy handed. That was unnecessary. I'm going I'm to take back that order. I'm going to take back that new policy that was unnecessary. He's willing to listen to the people around him. But Saul kind of doubles down. You shall surely die. But the people, though, the people are wiser than their king. Look at verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head that shall fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. The people are wiser than their king. Saul's impulsive, unnecessary rule did not make for a great victory. It made him to be unwise, a legalistic kind of leader. He, he, he leads with the, the mentality of do as I say, not as I do. He tries to celebrate his own name rather than the name of the Lord. He doesn't see himself as a servant or shepherd of the people, but the people there are for his own glory. And Saul's impulsiveness is a reason why the Lord rejects him. As we think about applying a text like this, we need good reminders for any of us in leadership or authority that we have over other people. We need to ask ourselves a question. Are we setting a right example for the people we lead? Is what we say and what we do on the same level? Is there integrity there? And then finally, are we able to admit where we as leaders get it wrong? Are we able to admit that at times, you know what, that, was, that wasn't helpful, that was unnecessary. I'm sorry how I wronged you. A boss who's willing to admit where they've messed up can say a lot to the people under your care. 
My dad modeled this so well for me. If he felt like he was heavy-handed with his discipline, if he was wrong in his direction, he was always quick to say, Son, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? That wasn't helpful. And what that said to me as a son, it didn't make, I didn't lose any respect for my dad. In fact, I grew in my respect and my love and admiration for dad because he was always he was willing, even in his position, to say, I've got it wrong. See, impulsive, unnecessary, and legalistic leadership, God will reject that if you're trying to put a heavy yoke on those under your care. But this really adds to the contrast in chapter 15. It makes Saul look even worse within the storyline here of Scripture because Saul is trying to hold his own son accountable to an unnecessary, legalistic command. But Saul himself disobeys a clear word from the Lord. So our second reason why God would reject a bad leader is that God rejects a bad king who fails to obey divine commands. God rejects a bad king who fails to obey a divine command. Chapter 15 begins with a highly provocative word of the Lord through Samuel. The words that we read here in these first three verses of chapter 15 are extremely difficult to embrace, even if they're easy to understand on paper. Follow with me. Chapter 15, verse 1. Here's the command from the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now if you read in advance this passage in advance, of this morning, you may have read that and go, did I read that right? Maybe you just heard it now and thought, did I hear him right? These are difficult passages to understand. And a similar text is in Joshua chapter 6, where in the conquest of Cana, the, the Israelites are told to destroy this entire group of people. And if you're not a Christian here and, and you're with us this morning, so glad that you're here. And you might have apprehensions about becoming a Christian because of a passage like 1 Samuel 15, 1-3. If you're a believer here today, you might struggle with reconciling what you know and have heard of God as a God who is gracious and merciful, He's loving and kind, and yet we see a passage like this where the people are told to destroy, in fact, kill everything that they see related to these people. So what do we do with this? So in light of our discussion right now about a bad king that God rejects, I want to take a little bit of an aside for a moment to help deal with a really important text. Because, again, if you're not a Christian, these could be one of the things that you're you're struggling with. And maybe you've had conversations as a believer with people who aren't Christians. And, you know, this is a a difficult point. And I'm not going to try to exhaust an answer here today. But I want to at least give us four lessons to help us understand this command of the Lord. Four lessons here. First, we need a history lesson. We need a history lesson. In verse 2, God says, I noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. 
We need to understand that the story then that this verse describes in Exodus 17 or Deuteronomy 25, you'll read those later. These events are described when the Amalekites came out against Israel after Israel was leaving Egypt. And in Exodus 17, Amalek came out against the Israelites. This is the story where Moses has his arm raised and they have victory over these people. And the people, remember, come to support Moses' arms. But in chapter Exodus 17, verse 14, God says this, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Part of what was so destructive about this, and in, in Deuteronomy 25 it describes this, the Amalekites attacked the weakest of the nation. They attacked the people who had been separated from the rest of the line. These were the sick, the elderly, the infant that they had attacked as part of this. So God said, God, God said, make a note of this. I will utterly blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So when we think about it, these weren't just innocent random people. These were historic enemies of Israel who had attacked their own, even the weakest among them at one point. That's a historical perspective. The second lesson we need is a theological lesson. We need a theological lesson. Part of the reason we struggle with a text like this is because we have too low a view of sin. See, we naturally think that everyone is on a level plateau, so at worst, we're indifferent toward God, and at best, we're prone toward God. We're good. We're inherently good. So it would seem odd, weird, strange for a loving God to kill innocent people. But what we know from the rest of the Bible is that there is no one innocent. For all people have been born in sin. All people stand under the, the weight of God's wrath against sin. We are sinners at birth. No one is neutral. For the wages of sin is death. And God's judgment of sinners is a more significant theological lesson that we need. See, this passage is no easier to embrace than a global flood in Genesis 6, where God regrets that he had even made man is going to wipe them from the face of the earth and start over. This text is no, no more easier to embrace than judgment coming on Sodom and Gomorrah, on sinners in those cities. This text is no easier to embrace than what Jesus says in the Gospels over and over and over. That those who do not respond in faith and repentance will send, spend eternity in hell, in conscious torment. See, these, what these Amalekites deserve because of their sin generations past is exactly what every human being deserves now who does not trust in Jesus Christ alone. Revelation chapter 20, we see that judgment comes on all those who do not repent of sin and trust in Jesus. For God to be good, he must be just and punish sinners. The third lesson we need is a pastoral lesson, a pastoral lesson. And when I say pastoral, what I mean is to provoke hope, to provoke encouragement. Have you ever thought about the hope of justice and judgment? Have you ever thought about how wicked it would be for a judge to know that wrongdoing had occurred, to know that that laws had been broken, to know that someone had been sinned against, to know that a person was guilty 
that the evidence was convincing. There was no denial, maybe even an admission. To know that those things had occurred, that someone had been robbed, murdered, molested. To know all that had happened, and then for the judge to simply say, that's no big deal. There will be no consequences for those wrongs. There will be no judgment, sentencing, on that evildoer. See, if that happened in our society, we would riot in the streets. If that happened in our society where, where injustice had occurred and then that, that punishment was not going to be offered, we would want that judge uh, off the bench, impeached from office. Because friends, we know that for God to be good, he must, must punish the wrongdoer. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32 in, in Romans 12, verse 19, where he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, knowing that God will deal with every wrongdoing, knowing that God will deal with every sin committed against you, knowing that God will deal with every abuse that you've endured, knowing that God will have vengeance on all those who have wronged, sinned, harmed people in this world should give us great hope to know that God is good and loving. As God's people, we can trust that God will make all things right. And even if we don't get even in an earthly sense, we know that God will be vindicated in an eternal sense. We want a God who deals with injustice, who makes all wrongs right. And finally, we need a missional lesson. All that I just said is true. But in a missional lesson, we need the reminder that God's new covenant people, there is always hope. There is always the hope of the gospel. See, yes, we don't apply this text, obviously, in the same way that the Israelites would. There is no command given to God's church, us as God's people through faith in Jesus. There is no command for us to go and do likewise. We will proclaim judgment that is on sinners, but we will not be the means of judgment on sinners. No, no one truly converts to Jesus Christ by putting a knife to their throat and saying, repent, convert, or die. No one says, you've done this to me, so therefore I'm going to do this to you. That is not a New Testament command for us. The New Testament command for God's people now is to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. See, as God's new covenant people with a missional lesson, we go and we endure persecution, we endure hardship as an example to share in the sufferings of Christ so that our persecutors might see something completely different in us. And for the very people who have wronged us, there is even still the hope of redemption. If you're looking for a story on this, go research or Google Rachel Denhollander, a United States gym, gym, gymnast who was abused by a medical doctor and go see her testimony as part of that. She was willing to point out wrongdoing. She was willing to say there's consequences for sin. And still, she still held out hope for the person who abused her. To say, you're going to spend a long time in prison. But there's still hope of eternal life upon faith and repentance. 
And yet still, the main idea of this text is not the command. It's in the disobedience of that command. The weight of this passage is not on what Saul is commanded to do. It's what he doesn't do. And he doesn't follow through. So look at verse 9. So they have this great victory. But in verse 9 it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. See, Saul was told to devote everything to destruction, and then he didn't do it. He saved the king and the best of the animals. And this was part of the final straw for God's rejection that we see in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Saul was ang- or Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. I'll deal with God's regret of Saul in a moment. But still we see that Samuel is grieved, that God himself is grieved over Saul's disobedience. We see a little bit more of the irony of this passage in verse 12. And Saul, <coughs> Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and he, behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you in the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul had built his own participation trophy. This memorial of fake obedience. Look at what I've done to perform this wonderful command. Look at verse 14 in Samuel's response. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said that they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Saul tries to defend himself here before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, stop. Stop trying to explain yourself. Stop trying to excuse yourself. Because partial obedience to the Lord's command is actually disobedience to God. Partial obedience is disobedience. God expects full obedience. Remember, don't follow the king who doesn't obey. Follow the king who obeys the Lord completely. Saul does not obey. His lack of complete obedience is sinful. It's willful disobedience. It's a willful rejection to the Lord. See, brothers and sisters... We do not offer our own fine prints to what God commands us to do. There are no exception clauses in God's commands for his people. There's no whatabouts, excuses, and I didn't hear. For all people are without excuse. We don't argue this like Saul does. I performed, I obeyed. No, you didn't. Because you didn't obey completely. We need a king who completely obeys. But Saul's disobedience is not just a a convenient or a, a lapse of judgment. No, it's rejection of God. And that's the final reason why God rejects him. Number three, God rejects a bad king who rejects him. The height of Saul's disobedience is actually a rejection of God himself as their king. This reveals, reads very similar to when 
in the request of a king that the people were rejecting the Lord. And Saul's argument to say, no, I have obeyed. And, and by, by him actually not obeying completely, he, in essence, is rejecting the Lord as king. We pick up on uh, Samuel's response or on his uh, uh, against Saul in verse 17. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Verse 20, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag and the, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen. Pastor Dave did a wonderful job of showing how Saul is a new type of Adam. Adam, when he was confronted with the Lord, he said, it wasn't my problem. It was the woman you gave me. Saul tries to say, I have obeyed. We're, we're, we're bringing these things for sacrifice to you. We, we devoted the best of these things so we might worship you. God, it wasn't my problem. It was the people you gave me. Saul's a lot like Adam. But God is not concerned about sheep, about oxen. He's concerned about hearts. Look at verse 22. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Two key points from Samuel's response to Saul here. First, the sacrifice God desires is a heart that trusts him, revealed through obedience. The sacrifice that God desires is a heart that trusts him, which is revealed through obedience. Years later, David would say the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and contrite heart. Samuel's trying to say to Saul that your religious ritualism, divorced from my heart of faith, does not please the Lord. See, we might feel this with our children right now too, right? We can get obedience, and that can be fine. But if I don't have your heart, we don't have the whole thing. See, with the Lord, a heart of trust is ultimately what he's looking for, revealed in obedience. Saul was a master legalist. He had put an unnecessary, unwise, ridiculous law on his people, on his own son. He had exasperated him in one sense. But when he had a clear opportunity to obey the Lord in a clear way, it doesn't proceed from his heart. God knows that Saul's heart is not with him. Brothers and sisters, the, what, what God desires most is a heart that trusts him. Do you trust God himself? Does your obedience flow from a relationship of trust in his character, his plan, and his will? Second lesson we see from Samuel's response to Saul is that to rebel against the Lord and reject him is not atheism, but self-worship. 
To rebel against the Lord and reject him is not atheism, but self-worship. Notice what he says in verse 23. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. One commentator says that the rebellion against God is in the same category as pagan idolatry. Saul had made himself out to be God, therefore making himself out to be like his father, Adam, who was tempted in the garden and said, surely you will be like God in the day that you eat of that tree. See, one of the great lies of our culture is for atheists who think that they, atheists believe that there is no God. Wrong. Atheists believe that they are God. And brothers and sisters, don't just point the finger outside, point it right here at us. Because every time you and I disobey the Lord, we have made ourselves out to be God. It's a form of personal idolatry. We have made an image of our own lives just like Saul to say, look at me. I am God. Yahweh is not. So after Samuel's rebuke, Saul seems to repent, but it doesn't look like legitimate repentance at all. In fact, Samuel and God see right through this. As Samuel turns and walks away, we see this desperate picture of Saul reaching out to grab Samuel's cloak. He rips it and then Samuel looks back at him and he says this in verse 28. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. We see in this chapter, at the end of chapter 14, that Saul had done some wonderful things. He had defeated armies. He had great successes. But it's almost as if Matthew chapter 7 could be said of Saul. Listen, this is Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Saul could be able to say, we had victory in your name. We had success in your name. But Saul's heart Never trusted the Lord. So God could look at him and say, depart from me. I never knew you. The kingdom was being torn and given to another. And the final word we see in chapter 15. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Whoa. And we look at that and we might get tripped up on how does the Lord have regret? We just read earlier that he doesn't have regret. He's not a man that he should have regret. So it reminds us that man's regret and God's regret are two different things. See, we regret over a bad decision or an unwise decision that didn't work out and we would want to redo again. But the emotion that we feel over that, the embarrassment or the guilt that we have or just the weight of something that went wrong, it's heavy on us. But it's because of a lack of total knowledge or it's a sin that we made that that results in a human kind of regret. But God's regret, God does not regret because he erred. 
God does not regret because he messed up. God does not regret because he sinned. No, never. But the feeling of regret, the emotion, the grief, the overwhelmingness of going, I wish that would have worked out different. God still feels that. And in a complete, perfect way of um, divine mystery for us in God's sovereignty and yet still feeling the emotional relationship with his people, God regrets and grieves the disobedience of the human beings that he's made. And brothers and sisters, it was true for Saul and it's true for us too. He regrets, he feels, he's emotional over our rebellion. He feels that. He desires relationship with us. He's not a distant God made of wood and stone who doesn't feel. No, he's a personal God who gave of him his own son. Notice what you see. There's a king that's coming. We see enough there, in the midst of a difficult passage full of rebuke. There's still just a glimmer of gospel hope. Because that kingdom doesn't end with Saul. It's being torn to him, but it's being given to another. Notice who's better than you. We know that to be David as the next king, but in a pure and true and more ultimate sense, that is Jesus Christ, the king. Who is perfectly obedient to his father. Who is always wise and righteous. Who leads with complete integrity for the benefit of his people, who obeys his father to the uttermost, who obeys in every way that you and I fail, so that through his righteous obedience, he might give us his righteousness for all who would respond in faith and repentance. And that king, don't follow the king who doesn't obey the Lord. Follow the king who obeys the Lord completely. See, brothers and sisters, if there's any hope that I have in this series, this no other king, is that we would be the people who sure are concerned about the leaders among us. Sure, who are passionate about good and wise leaders among us. But I pray that we would be less concerned about leaders on a ballot and more hopeful and trust, trusting of a leader who's on the throne. So that we might be the kind of people who are not moved by any wind of doctrine or by leaders who come and go or leaders who disappoint or leaders we wish we had. But we would be those who are steadfast, faithful, immovable. Because we know that there is no other king. Christ, the king, who obeys his father completely, who leads us triumphantly. We can trust in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are the only king. Forgive us, Lord, for when we trust in other sources. Forgive us when we make ourselves out to be idols. Forgive us when we put our allegiance into anyone other than you. We pray, God, that you would fill us with such a deep and passionate desire and affection for you and a, a trustworthy, immovable hope that is in you that we might be those that whatever comes, that we can know and follow you, the king who completely obedient, victorious, and the king who reigns over us. In Jesus' name, amen.